Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming out tonight. We're going to continue on our study of Malachi. I'm going to overlap a couple of verses. I'm going to back up to the 17th verse of the second chapter. And then we're going to go down through the 7th verse of the 3rd chapter. But then next week, we're going to overlap back to the 7th verse of the 3rd chapter. There's a reason for this madness, but that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to read again verse 17 of Malachi chapter 2. It says, You've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? And that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word, and we thank you for your people who've taken time out of their lives to be here tonight because they love the word of God. There's no other explanation for that. So we thank you for them, and we pray that you would take notice of those people that have that passion, and we pray you bless them for that. In Jesus' name, amen. When the people of Malachi's day went to the temple, I'm totally convinced they did have some religious experience. I'm sure that when they went to the temple and when they left, they left feeling good about themselves. They didn't leave being right with God, and they did not leave with hearts that had really changed. But I'm sure that the worship made them feel good about themselves, even though in God's sight it was worthless and God wished it would be shut down. Now, so far in Malachi, God has named 19 things that these people were doing that angered him. These people were blind to their own sin. They thought God should be fully blessing them. They had been in the land actually from Babylon for about 100 years, and they had been back in the land with the temple up for 70 to 80 years, but at this point, the kingdom had not yet been established, and they delusionally thought, we deserve it. We deserve the kingdom being established. Here they were calling evil good and good evil, and Isaiah describes what they were doing in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. That's what these people were doing. And then they were saying, well, how have we wearied God? And then, if that's not enough, they're complaining about God's justice. They're asking, where is the justice of God? Where is God's justice? As one commentator said, this is outlandish. 
Here they were pathetically living their lives in rebellion against God, and then because they're not experiencing millennial bliss, and God hasn't given them the kingdom yet, they're blaming God and saying, where is the God of justice? These people were living lives of sin, and then saying, well, where are you, God? How come you're not blessing us? How come things aren't good? Why aren't you just, and why are you letting evil power still control us? Why don't we have our kingdom why haven't you given us all our land and turned this land into a land flowing with milk and honey? And their thinking was, here we are, we're at the temple, we're going to worship services. I mean, we're here and we're doing that stuff and we're doing it regularly, so why hasn't a God of justice blessed us with all those blessings? I think there are people today who go to church have exactly the same attitude. Their hearts are not really right with God and they know it. I mean, they know it. Behind the scenes, they're living loose, sinful lives, and then they look at things and say, well, where are you, God? Why are you letting the godless people get away with it? Where's your justice? God says, take a look at yourself, and you'll see the reason. You'll get your answer. And I want you to notice something that we really do need to note. When we make statements like that, where are you, God? How come you're letting them dominate? What's going on here? It wearies God. Notice that statement. Don't overlook it. It wearies God. How have we wearied him? That's how you've done it. So God says, okay, you want me to come? You'll get me. I will eventually come and I'll do everything I said I would do. But when I do come, for many of you, it's not going to be a happy moment. In fact, what he says is in view of the pathetic, present, foolish condition of his own people, God reveals that he will come and he will judge. Now, I don't think most people have a clue as to how intimidating that moment is going to be. I don't think most people have a clue as to how intimidating it will be to face Jesus Christ. They only think about the Lord in terms of a loving Savior, which he is. But they loosely say, well, we want them to come get us, but do you really want that? I mean, do you really, are you ready for that? I mean, are you ready for that moment where we go to the Bema seat? Are you ready for that? Now, these people were going through the motions of worship, but their hearts were not right with the Lord. And they're saying, where's the justice, God? How come we don't have our kingdom? God says, all right, you want justice? I'll bring it to you. And thank God... As we prayed tonight, that God is always filled with all of his attributes, and all of his attributes never changed. Never change. Because even though God is a God of justice, it's always tempered in the sense that he's also a God of grace and mercy, and that all works together to make God who he is. But for one not right with God, the coming of Jesus Christ is a major threat if one is thinking right. And in this section of scripture, there are five main prophetic predictions that have to do both with the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes when prophets would speak, they would combine first coming of Christ and second coming of Christ. You'll get to see them here in living color. Now, the first prediction is God's going to send his messenger. We read in verse one, behold, I'm going to send my messenger. Now, this verse is a very famous verse. It's quoted in the New Testament in several passages. And all of the references that use the quote specifically say that the messenger to whom this refers is John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. 
Now, the thing that established John as this forerunner was, number one, his preaching of repentance. He came preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And also, John's baptism, when he was baptizing Jewish people in the Jordan River. John had a responsibility to go into Israel and preach repentance to Israel and to baptize Jewish people in the river as a statement that the justice of God and the Messiah of God had finally come to Jerusalem. Now, I do want you to go over to Luke 7 for just a minute, if you would, please. Luke 7, because I want to show you something. Remember what these people are asking. Where's your justice, God? Where's your justice? That's what they're asking. Because they don't have the land and the totality. They don't seem to be having all of the blessings of God. So in Luke chapter 7, I want to draw your attention to verse 27, which is a quotation of the verse we just read, or part of the verse we just read. Verse 27 of Luke 7, this is the one about whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then look at verse 29. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledge God's justice. They acknowledge God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. By the way, I want to point out something very significant. John was not a Baptist. As some denominations like to allege, his specific prophetic assignment was to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ to the nation Israel. His baptizing work was a Jewish ceremonial statement in which a Jew admitted that he was a sinner, did not have the righteousness necessary to get into the kingdom, and realized in order to get into that kingdom from a just God, they needed a righteousness they did not have. Now let's go back to Malachi chapter 3 because I want you to notice what is said here in verse 1. I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Notice the pronouns my and me. So God says, I'm actually going to send a messenger who will clear the way before I come. So whoever comes after John the forerunner clears the way for is none other than God himself and the one who actually comes is Jesus Christ. So when Jesus Christ shows up as the one John announces, it obviously proves Jesus Christ is God, just another one of the many proofs that proves that Jesus Christ is in fact God. Now, the member of the Godhead is predicted to come and John the Baptist is going to clear the way before him. And Jesus quotes this very verse himself, specifically connecting it to John. Luke does the same thing. And there are two facts that are brought out here. God is the one sending the messenger. God would literally send a messenger, but it would not be immediately. And what that tells us is God's the one who determines the time, the time of when he'll send a messenger. It's a time chronology. And by him saying, I'm going to send my messenger, I also think in chronology, this will be the next thing that's going to happen when you're going to hear from me again. He's going to be quiet after Malachi shuts down for 450 years. So he basically says, what you can look for when I start working with you people again is I'll send my messenger. 450 years from now, it would turn out to be he'll show up and that'll be my messenger. Secondly, he will clear the way before God. The verb clear the way is the idea he'll make his path clear, free from debris and obstacles. In other words, he's going to point him out. 
He will be very clear on who I am. He'll be very clear on who the Messiah is. I'm going to give knowledge to Israel of the way of salvation. I'm going to give knowledge to Israel about the forgiveness of sins. He will clear the way for me to come. And according to Isaiah 40, he would come out of the wilderness and clear the way by his voice. He would use his voice. And the message that he would preach or proclaim is repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that, of course, would all be preparatory to the actual presence of Jesus Christ coming and dying on the cross. He would be the sacrifice for sins and for the sins of national Israel, and for that matter, the sins for us as well. So whomever this messenger is, whenever this messenger shows up, he will be a prelude to God being here in person, and he will clearly identify him as being the Messiah and Lord. He will declare the way of salvation. He will declare the way of forgiveness. He'll pave the way for that. So that's the first prophecy that Malachi gives. The second prediction is he'll come suddenly to the temple. Verse 1 says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? Now that adverb suddenly means he's going to come unexpectedly. Jews won't be expecting him to show up. They won't be expecting it. We think it as a double prophetic application, not just to the first coming of Jesus Christ, which was a surprise. But I think more than that, because of what's going to be stated later in the text, this has a lot to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice what he says, and the Lord, capital L, small case O-R-D, that's Adonai, the sovereign master, the Lord, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. I don't think it's a coincidence that noun is used because that is a clear prediction that pertains to Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, we read that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, we read, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In Philippians 2.11, we read, Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what Malachi is basically saying here is the Lord himself, God himself, is going to come to this temple. And it's a specific prediction that has to do with Jesus Christ coming to the temple. And notice, it's his temple. His temple. He's the only one who can go in there and claim that it is his temple. He is the God-man, he's the Son of God, he's sent there by God the Father. And the assumption we can make, because as you'll see, a lot of the language we're going to go through here has to do with his second coming rather than his first coming, the obvious implication is the temple is going to be standing and in existence. Now, it is stated in verse 1 that the people will actually seek this one, and the Lord whom you seek. Now, what are they seeking and what they are looking for is stated in verse 17. They want kingdom justice. That's what they're seeking. They're seeking the Lord for kingdom justice. They want their kingdom established. They want all political powers destroyed. What they are seeking is the Lord to come and give them kingdom justice. They're not interested in seeking God to have their sins forgiven. They don't even admit they've sinned. They aren't interested in seeking God because they sense the urgency of the conviction of their need for a righteousness they don't have. 
They're seeking him because they want a just God to establish their kingdom. And the truth is, if God went specifically by justice, Israel would never have a kingdom, as you'll see later in this very context. You talk about fickle. These people are not right with God, yet they want God to come as a God of justice. I mean, they are involved in living corrupt lives. We've seen that graphically laid out in the previous chapters. They're involved in horrible sin, yet they want him to come. So what you have here is a bunch of God's people who aren't really right with God, but they want him to come. And he says, okay, okay, I'll show up, and which one of you will be able to endure it? That's what he says in verse 2. Okay, we'll come. That's what you want. But who of you is going to be able to endure it? And what's stated at the end of verse 2 is that when he does come, he doesn't appear to be coming like a meek lamb here. Verse 2 says, and he's going to come like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He says, all right, I'll come. And when I come, I'll come with a fiery judgment and I'll come to clean up things like I would with a bar of soap. It's a borit in Hebrew, which is a cleansing agent that was actually used for making soap. So I said, you're missing it. I'm not coming first to establish the kingdom that you people want. You think, where's the just God in establishing the kingdom? I'm coming to clean you people up. I'm coming into this world to cleanse you, to clean you up, and that's what you need. You're going to these worship services filthy, and you don't realize you need a cleansing. And so he says, well, which one of you are going to be ready to meet me? I mean, who is it that is going to stand when he appears? The answer is no one. This initial phase of judgment was not going to be one of rewarding them and patting them on the back and blessing them. It was going to be an initial phase of fire and soap ministry. And who would be able to stand before him? If you're going to stand before him, you need two things. You need to be cleaned up by soap and you need to be purified by a refiner. Now, I think that this has tremendous application to the second half of the tribulation the time of Jacob's trouble. And the reason I say that is this is the kind of language about smelter and purifying silver and gold that is used in that very text. So just back up a few pages, a couple of pages to Zechariah, because it's the book just before Malachi, and look, if you would, at chapter 13. And notice verse 8. It will come about in all the land, Zechariah 13, 8. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, the two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third part will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through a fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. So, so this refining moment speaks of a time when there's going to be a judgment that is going to be specifically coming to Israel and it's going to refine them, and one-third of them will be the left remnant who will have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Now, remember, these are people who are not clean. These are people who are not pure. These are people who are going to the regular worship services and going, how come, God, you're letting us go through all these troublesome things? And God says, I'll tell you why I'm letting you go through those troublesome things. You have a problem. It's your problem. And the problem is you're not clean and you're not pure. So I'm going to have to come 
and I'm going to have to come and wash you and clean you up. Which brings us to the third prediction, the Lord will sit as a purifier of his priests. Verse 3, he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of the old and as in former days. Stephen Miller in his commentary said, unfaithful priests are going to be removed. And I don't think most ministers have a clue as to how serious it is going to be when we get before God, and I put myself in that. It is going to be intimidating. It's going to be intimidating. God demands that his ministers be clean and pure. He's looking for fine-tuned quality. He wants righteousness in the lives of his ministers, and those who are making a living by taking the offerings of the people of God, they're taking God's money, but they're not leading people in the true ways of God. They are a disgrace. And they are going to face the Lord God, and they are going to be seen for what they were. They were a disgrace. Now, I want you to keep in mind these priests had become so loose and lax that as long as they got the paycheck, they didn't care what they offered. So they were just taking in offerings from anybody. It didn't matter if it were a clean offering or not. It didn't matter if it was pure. It didn't matter if it was complete. They were taking offerings from blind animals, lame animals. I mean, animals that were unacceptable to the Lord. But these priests weren't concerned about that. They weren't concerned about protecting God, reverencing God at all. And these priests are talking about the justice of God. What a sham show that is. God's people didn't realize, look, when the Lord comes, you need to understand this. This is going to be serious stuff. When the Lord comes, he's going to come to refine you. He's going to purify you. He called you to repentance. You didn't see the need to repent. In fact, when Jesus Christ came the first time to Israel and John said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, those priests and those religious leaders, they didn't see any need of that. In fact, they hated him for telling them that. But it's clear from this text that a priest cannot possibly offer acceptable offerings to God if he's not clean. And all Israel is cleansed. And after she's cleansed, she'll begin to worship God again, and she'll please God in an acceptable way. And that's what God requires, purity and cleanliness so that we can worship God in an acceptable, pleasing way to the Lord. Now the fourth prediction is the Lord's going to sit as judge. Verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earners his wages, and widow and orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Judgment's going to come against Israel, and it will come against the world, and we get a glimpse of the kinds of things that God is going to judge at judgment. Man, you don't want to be dabbling around with this stuff. I'm telling you right now, you want to stay far away from any of the things in this list. Because we know this specific list are the kinds of things that he's going to look for when he comes to analyze his own people. And there are eight specific areas of judgment that are mentioned. First of all, he's going to judge the sorcerers. Now, the word sorcerer refers to witchcraft kinds of things, demonic kinds of things. Things like uh, rituals and incantations, and we know that that's going to be a critical feature, a major feature of the Great Tribulation. Now, witches and sorcerers are supposed to be executed. The first uh, text there in Leviticus 20, 27 says that, also Deuteronomy 
uh, 18, 9 to 11 says that when Jesus Christ returns, he will forever execute them. But he's going to come back and look for people who've been dabbling around with demonic stuff. You don't want to be messing with this stuff. You stay far away from anything of the occult, far away from anything that's demonic, because that's the kind of thing that will bring the judgment of God. The second area of judgment, he's going to judge adulterers. Sexual immorality will be a key feature of the world just before Jesus Christ returns. We know from passages in the book of Revelation that immorality is going to be a key feature of what's going to take place in the Great Tribulation, and it's going to get worse and worse. Flip over, hold your finger here, go over to Revelation 16 for just a minute. Revelation 16, and let me just show you one text of Scripture here about how bad it's going to get. In Revelation 16 and verse 15, now this is just before Christ comes the second time. He's describing what the world's like before he comes the second time. And in Revelation 16, 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. He's actually pronouncing a blessing on somebody who keeps their clothes on. Well, how wicked does the world have to be in order for him to say, I'll bless people who keep their clothes on? This is going to be such a demonic immoral world that it will be the rare individual that will pursue what is moral and righteous and pure and good. We learn from Revelation chapter 18 that all nations will be drunk with immorality. That's what the text says, drunk with immorality. So what we would learn here is just before the Lord Jesus Christ returns, this world is going to get darker and darker and more and more into immoral things. You stay away from that. You don't want that on your account when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to get us. You don't want that. So anything that's immoral, you walk away from. The third judgment is those who are false witnesses. Just before the Lord returns in the great tribulation, these sins are going to dominate. False testimony and liars and deceivers are going to exist. As we pointed out last Sunday, we should be truth setters. What we are, what we say is what we are and what we say. That's exactly the way it should be. We should not bend truth. We should not lie. We should not color facts. We should not in any way present things that are false because that's a serious deal. Start playing some lying game when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. He's telling us, this is what I'm going to do. You want a God of justice? You want me to come back? All right, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to judge. Then the fourth area, he'll judge those who oppress employees. Now, the word oppress goes with the next three nouns. The word is a shock in Hebrew. It's a particular word that means to oppress somebody by defrauding them in an unjust way. There were people, obviously, that were being defrauded out of their wages. There were employers that were taking advantage of employees. They were not dealing with them fairly or justly in wages that they owed them. That was obviously happening. And some of the people were probably saying, well, you know, we're all part of God's family, so we won't pay him what we owe them. I think that's a terrible thing. I'll tell you what, these things make me think a lot about, because I have quite a few people that are under me that we support, we pay. And I take that pretty seriously. You've got a responsibility to see to it that they're cared for, and you don't do something that would demean them in any way. I think as we near the second coming of Jesus Christ, you're going to see more and more people being laid off their jobs while CEOs are going to get richer. Because they're not going to care about the employee. They're not going to care about the wage earner. 
They're not going to really care whether or not they can make a living. They're going to just be more and more greedy to get more and more for themselves. But I tell you what, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to analyze that. So if you have the responsibility and the privilege of employing people or you're in a situation where you're in management, you take good care. You watch out for those people that are under you. That's a responsibility God gives to those in those positions. The fifth area of judgment with those who oppress the widow. It's clear that widows were not being treated justly. They were being defrauded. We suspect that priests were taking more and more for themselves rather than caring for the widow. I actually know of a, a case where a minister actually went into a widow's home and stole something from this widow because he wanted it. She went out in the kitchen to get him a cup of coffee. And when she walked out into the kitchen, he took this thing from a widow. A minister took this thing from a widow. Finally, he was arrested for his thievery, but he did it. This is something that's going to just continue. People are going to steal from other people. They'll take it from widows. And the sixth area is they'll take it from an orphan. There were people who were being treated unjustly and being defrauded. And there are, I was just learning that there are people who learn how to scam money, like social security money that's supposed to go to widows and orphans that are supposed to be used to help these people. There are these people now who are learning how to scam people out of that money and get it into their accounts. And they actually will, my son was telling me this, they'll actually wait in a mailbox area to try and get the numbers off of things that are going into the mailbox so they can take advantage of the widow. And They don't care if they have anything to eat. They just want to steal what they have. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, he said, the world will be filled with people like that and I'll deal with them. The seventh area of judgment, he'll judge those who refuse to minister to an alien. Now, verse 5 is interesting, the language here, because it says, who turn aside the alien. Now, I would understand that to mean that they turn aside the alien in multiple ways, but certainly one of the ways that they turned the alien aside was from being right with the Lord. So that's a pretty heavy charge. I mean, if you actually are responsible for taking someone who's not in the family and you turn them away from the things of God by the way that you've abused them or the way you've mistreated them, that is a serious, serious violation of the Lord, and it'll bring the judgment of God. And the eighth area of judgment, and this really gets at the heart of it, he'll judge those that don't fear God. That's what he says there at the end of verse 5, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You know, when the Lord Jesus Christ came the first time, Israel didn't fear him, didn't reverence him, killed him. They wouldn't even accept who he was. When he comes the next time, they'll fear him all right, and so will everyone else in the world. And really, it's the fear of the Lord the reverence of God that becomes a real key motive for turning away from evil. I mean, people who don't fear the Lord, they don't care how they live. They don't care what they do. They don't care what anybody else does. But those who fear the Lord, they live life altogether different, realizing there's a day of accountability coming. So the Lord says, you want justice? Oh, you're going to get it. I'll come back and we'll settle up. Which brings us to the fifth prediction, the Lord will return and not consume his people. Verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. I like the fact that he calls them sons of Jacob, and I think there's a reason why he does that here. He doesn't call them sons of Israel or sons of Judah, 
which Judah would be in the south and Israel in the north. He calls them sons of Jacob because he wants them to think about, you know, remember Jacob, the liar? Remember Jacob, the deceiver, the crooked schemer? Remember Jacob, the trickster? I think he's purposely calling Israel by this title to show how corrupt she is. She doesn't realize it yet. But he says, I want you to understand something. When I come back and I end up establishing a kingdom for you, you won't deserve it. You won't deserve it. But I'm going to do it. In fact, he says from verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes. And if you not kept them, return to me, I'll return to you. But you say, how shall we return? So what basically the Lord is saying here is from the days of your fathers, you've done nothing but turn away from me and my word. You've not kept my word. You're not serious about me. You're not serious about my word. You've got all this religious stuff. You go to all the religious services that you go to and you do all the religious stuff and you give these offerings that you give, but he says, you've not really got into a right relationship with me, so I'll come back, all right, and I'll take care of things. I want to leave us tonight with three parting thoughts from this text in Malachi. Number one, when things look dark, when the world looks dark, be very careful what you say about God. Be very, very careful what you say about God. Because we never want God to say about us, you weary me. These people were popping off their mouths about God. They'd done it one too many times. So when things look dark, Be very careful what you say about God, because he is listening. He is listening. Secondly, stay away from things you know God will destroy. Stay away from things you know God will destroy. Stay away from demonic stuff. I mean, anything that gets into that category, science fiction, demonic movies, stay away from that stuff. That's not good stuff. Stay away from immoral things. Stay away from lying. Be a truth setter. Stay away from cheating and stealing. Don't defraud somebody. Treat people fairly. And thirdly, when things aren't the best for us, never oppress people who have less than us. Or let me say it another way. When things aren't the best, don't forget When God gives us opportunities, we still need to be concerned about widows and orphans. That is a responsibility that God gives to Israel. That's a responsibility God gives to the church. And as an individual, it's at times responsibility that he gives to us. That's what Malachi communicated in that section of scripture tonight. Be careful driving home. Good night. The Lord bless you.